0: Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org. For today's episode, I'm joined by four guests, which I think is a record for us at Bioscience Talks. They're Michigan State University professors Kevin Elliott, Kendra Truvalil, Georgina Montgomery, and Patricia Serrano. Their article in Bioscience is on data-intensive science and the ways in which big data is changing scientific practice and reviving some old debates on scientific methodology. Let's get straight to the interview. Thank you all very much for joining me here today. Good to be here. (laughs) Okay, and before we get started with the interview, I'm going to take the somewhat unconventional step of asking you each to introduce yourselves by name and affiliation, just to give the listeners a chance to put names to voices.
1: So I'm Kevin Elliott. I'm a philosopher of science jointly affiliated in Lyman Briggs College, which is a residential college at MSU, and um, the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife, and the Department of Philosophy.
2: I'm Kendra Cheravelle. I am uh, an ecologist and who's also jointly appointed in the Lyman Briggs College and the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife.
3: I'm Georgina Montgomery. I'm a historian of science and I'm also jointly appointed in Lyman Briggs College and
4: the History Department. I'm Pat Serrano. I'm an ecologist in the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife at Michigan State University.
0: Okay, thank you for indulging me. And your article focuses on data-intensive science practices. And I'm hoping you could just tell us a little bit about what data-intensive science practices are.
4: Sure. So I think it always helps to start by defining what we mean by these terms. And data-intensive science is where uh, large volumes of data are central to the scientific study. And that includes not only collecting the data, but uh, curating it, so taking care of it and documenting it, and then, of course, analyzing it. And this just brings new challenges to scientists compared to uh, studies that require less data.
1: And one of the things that we found interesting as we were researching for the paper is the way in which, you know, in some ways, This kind of big data or data-intensive science has been going on for a long time. We read some really interesting work by historians of science uh, pointing out that scientists have been challenged by large quantities of data for centuries, but then contemporary data-intensive science has some distinctive characteristics of its own using more computational methods and um, large teams of scientists uh, coming from different disciplines.
0: Okay. And before we dig any deeper into, you know, the way that this is affecting the practice of science, um, could you give us one example of a field of research that has been heavily affected by data-intensive science? You know, what's one research program that's now quite a bit different um, because of these new computational methods?
4: Well, I guess I would say one thing. Interestingly, most data-intensive research is not done by one researcher, right? It's by relatively quite large teams so I think the you know the physicists working on uh, particle physics (laughs) that is not my research area but you know those are teams of hundreds of scientists and for some publications you have hundreds of authors And so that's an example of where they need large volumes of data to do their research. And it's done by very large teams. So physicists is one area. Another area are people who study genomics. We just have the capability to collect more and more genomic data than we ever have. And it's it's hard to sift through it. And those studies are often done by teams as well.
1: And it's been fascinating for me as a philosopher, even seeing Pat and Kendra and the work they're doing in the environmental sciences, um, bringing big data techniques and collaborating with uh, folks doing work in computer science and so on. Um, So it's, it's fascinating that provided part of the motivation actually for writing the paper as they were thinking about their practices.
0: And how have those practices changed over the years, you know, from what they would have been traditionally?
2: Well, as ecologists, Pat and I, um, Came up in a field that traditionally works as single investigators, a, a lead PI, working with their students perhaps in a lab or going out in the field to do studies. Um, and so that's kind of different from what we do now, where we have a, a collaborations with computer scientists, with uh, people who do um statistics with people who are specialists in informatics, that kind of thing. And so it it is quite a different sort of world for the folks of us who are doing data-intensive ecology. Um, It's quite a large shift.
0: Okay. And you touched on it a little bit there, but one of the major focuses of the article is on the way that these new practices are changing traditional conceptions of scientific methodology. And I hope you could just tell us a little bit more about that.
1: This was something that was really interesting for us again in thinking through these issues that we would actually argue that this isn't so much a sudden dramatic change in scientific methods, but that for centuries, scientists and philosophers uh, looking at science and so on have been debating about what counts as good scientific methods. Um, So I know it was interesting talking to uh, Pat, as we were looking at some of this work, how striking it was to see some of the scientists during the scientific revolution themselves being suspicious of uh, uh, focusing on hypothesis testing. So, a really different kind of picture than we might uh, think in terms of what many scientists would say good science sh- should look like uh, traditionally in the 20th century.
4: Yeah, I'll just follow up on that. That struck me about the fact that, you know, it, it, hundreds of years ago, you had. Uh, Boyle and another, and Hook, two well known scientists who were arguing for hypothesis driven science against Newton and Bacon, also two very well respected scientists, saying, you know what, maybe hypothesis driven science isn't the way to go, we should do more inductive science. And what struck me is that historically we value and we hold both groups of scientists in very high esteem. And yet, if those scientists arguing for inductive methods were around today, I would think maybe people would have less respect for them, or they would find it hard to operate in today's culture that's very hypothesis-driven. Mm-hmm. That, that's, so that, that's one example where I loved seeing the historical um, account of how, how we've changed. And as a contemporary scientist, I don't know any of this history, so it's been great working with Georgina and Kevin to to learn some of this.
3: That's one of the things we've really focused on with a historical perspective is looking at this idea of acceptability. And like Kevin was saying, this question of what counts as good science, and that's a question that has been asked for centuries, and there's a lot of these terms remain very value-laden. Like even if you say hard sciences versus soft sciences, that's a trying to sort of implicitly communicate to some what science, sciences are seen as more valuable than others, or the word amateur versus professional. Um So those words have always had values associated with them, and that's something that we've talked about, is the idea of continuity as well as change that we try to bring into the paper, that there are these significant shifts, and there is a difference between data-intensive science in 2016 versus what Darwin did, but there is also some continuity and similarities as well. So we try not to overly simplify it and make it too black and white, but instead think about what's the nuances there of looking at continuity and change, which is really what history as a discipline is all about.
0: One
1: of the things I really enjoyed in looking at our case study of Darwin and his work, um, there's this somewhat tongue-in-cheek editorial that we mention in the paper um, uh, by uh, Frank Gannon, who argued that if Darwin were trying to get his work funded now, that uh, his funding application would just have been dismissed as a you know problematic fishing expedition. And um, it's just sort of a fun illustration of the fact that, you know, characteristics of what we might think of as, you know, ideal science, you know, what should, you know, a funding application look like now, maybe different in a lot of ways from uh, what was being done, say 150 years ago.
2: And what then formed the basis for lots of science as we know today,
0: (laughs) very good science. You know, one thing that made me wonder was, are we perhaps not getting the science that we should get because of where our emphasis is um, in terms of methodology? Does this focus on a linear approach, um, mean that worthwhile areas of study are not being funded that should be?
1: Well, what we argue in the paper is that we think that there's a lot of interesting work in the history of science and the philosophy of science pointing out, um, that science often operates in an iterative way, moving back and forth between different, what we call modes of research, more hypothesis driven or focusing more on exploratory work or, uh, developing new techniques or asking questions. And so, I think we would say that a lot of this is already going on uh, within the scientific community, but sometimes the way our structures for funding and publishing science make it uh, more complicated for scientists to be able to present this work that they're doing or to justify the work or to get the funding for it. And so, we try to suggest in the paper some ways in which the scientific uh, approaches to funding and publishing and education could help to facilitate this complexity of practices that is has been going on and is going on.
3: We really wanted those practices to align with the reality, the sort of lived experiences of scientists today, um, which is one of the things we talked about of education too, the fact that um, I think we do think we're doing a disservice to students if you continue teaching a linear, a straight, linear, simplified approach to the scientific method, which many textbooks do still have. Um, and the importance of comp- having more complexity in undergraduate and even high school and K-12 through education as well. And I think one way to break beyond that linear hypothesis sort of testing approach to the scientific method is to make our science classes more interdisciplinary. And that is something that Lyman Briggs College, for example, where three of the four of us are uh, appointed, does integrate STEM classes with um, the history and philosophy of science to sort of give a broader perspective of what science really is like for our students, Um, many of whom go on to be scientific professionals or go into um, medical fields. Um, The other thing that MSU is doing right now is an initiative called S3, or Science and Society at State, which I actually directed. It was an S3 grant that helped start our collaboration. And that's really about trying to bring people from history and philosophy and other humanities and social sciences and into collaboration with our STEM colleagues on campus, where often these departments and disciplines are siloed, when actually, if you come together, the collaboration can be incredibly fruitful and fulfilling, as I think the four of us have all found our professional collaboration to be very enlightening and very fun
4: and productive. I I would agree. I I think that's a great point, Georgina. For example, um, I have found, I was really struck, by when we first started working, when Kendra and I first started working with a historian and philosopher to find out that actually there are scholars out there who study us. <laughs> Kendra and I are the study organisms about how we do research. And it's the the literature that they've exposed us to has just been so valuable in thinking about how we do our science and how we operate as scientists. And I, I've found... Um, this incredibly helpful from a scientific perspective. And I think all scientists need to do a better job of being a little more reflective about our modes and practices. And I think a historical and philosophical perspective can help us do that.
2: And it's interesting too, you asked about whether you thought we thought that we were missing some good science because of focusing on a, a more linear model. And I would say that we might be, in part because if we're teaching children from a young age all the way through undergraduate and graduate education, that science is a very is, is narrow in terms of what it is and how it's done, then we may be missing uh, recruiting some really brilliant and creative minds into science. And of course, it's super important, right, for us to have diversity in STEM to be able to come up with solutions to big problems that we're facing. And so it may be that we are missing some really crucial science just simply because we're not recruiting the broad base of people that we could be into the fields.
3: But a really simple example of that would be that most people think of Darwin as a lone genius, this lone white male genius. When if you ask any historian of science um, like myself who, who knows about Darwin's research, Uh, Darwin had a slew of people collecting data for him, giving him information that he sometimes credits um, with a specific name, sometimes anonymously, sometimes doesn't credit at all in the origin and also Descent of Man and Expressions of Emotions. Um, For example, in Expression of Emotions, perhaps Darwin's least famous work in that sort of trilogy, he talks about um, infant expressions, and that's something that he made observations of his own children, which he had numerous of, um, but also women across the the UK were sending them, often mothers were sending observations of their own children. Um, so with a little bit of historical perspective, you can break that idea. that This is his own genius that came up with um, some important biological theories, obviously most famous um, evolution for natural selection, which in in itself helps um, increase diversity in STEM because it shows that science is actually collaborative. It's not just based on some sort of genius. And if you don't have that genius, you're not going to be successful in the field.
4: And if I could just um, second that and point out that, for example, just a month ago, an editorial or an essay was published in, the proceedings of the National Academy of Science arguing that we need to go back to the good old days of maverick scientists and lone genius, and so this is this is a very uh, this is an issue that we're dealing with now with scientists. It's sort of a it's I feel like it's a cultural there's a cultural divide between you know thinking that this lone genius way of doing science is the way that we need to do it versus a more collaborative, interdisciplinary style. And so I think that's also underlined some of these debates.
1: Another point, building on Kendra's emphasis that we might actually be missing out on some important science, as we were working on the paper, um, one thing that I thought that Pat and Kendra both really emphasized was that some of the really important scientific questions that they or others would like to address aren't easy to address using a focused hypothesis-driven approach that uh, one may need other scientific approaches. One may need to have a broader question-driven approach or do exploratory work. And so, you know, as one investigates, then there may be times in which one can narrow down one's questions and focus on a hypothesis test. But if we want to address really big social challenges, it may be important to uh, take a more iterative, complex, multimodal approach to doing science.
0: That's interesting, and from hearing you all speak about you know kind of the historical perspective, um, one thing that struck me is that you know this more collaborative, less linear approach seems to have been in use, but somehow we've managed to tell ourselves the wrong story about it. Um, <laughs> the narrative is incorrect. It's not so much that the science was incorrect, or that you know mm-hmm. the approach was wrong, or that the approach has even dramatically changed. But we tell ourselves and our you know students and our funders um the wrong thing is there any do you happen to have any notion of you know kind of how that happened
3: one classic example is when you look at this the story or the history of women in biology so i was actually just reading a, a draft of a chapter by marcha richmond who's a colleague of mine at wayne state and she's gonna she's just written a chapter about um women in biology and the idea that people think that that's a relatively new phenomenon that there's been women in biology but actually there's a long history of women in biology but they've written out of the of those stories, like you were using the word stories or, or histories, um, often because they're not credited or the work that they're doing is undervalued in some way. So they're seen perhaps as an illustrator with their husband being a scientist doing you know, biological work, um, or they're not credited or they um, have a pseudonym. Um, or they use an initial to kind of obscure um, the fact that they're a female scientist. Um, So, yeah, and then suddenly they just become separated from the fabric of the the story that we tell about that field, and they become invisible, basically, or what we call on the scientific periphery, so they're not seen as part of the central establishment of a scientific field. So I think that idea of the stories that we tell, that's a nice way of putting it. And I think it goes back again to Kevin's point about the publishing funding and education reforms that we suggest. They're also stories that we tell. I mean, we, we try and we try and, and obscure the reality of how scientists many scientists are functioning um, by sticking to this linear approach in a lot of our um, ways in which we're supposed to write grants and the way in which we're supposed to write papers, Um, that those those things haven't really caught up with the way in which those people that are in favor of collaborative interdisciplinary data-intensive approaches are functioning.
1: It's also interesting to look at historically. Not only did you have these debates that Pat was mentioning between different scientists with very different conceptions of what good scientific methods should look like, but Even with our case study of Darwin, he was really struggling to try to present his work in ways that fit with particular conceptions of what good methodology should look like. You know, some were arguing for a more inductive approach, others for more of a hypothesis focus, and he was trying to sort of present his work in ways that fit those conceptions. So uh, there's been a long history of Mm -hmm. trying to almost shoehorn scientific work into particular conceptions of what good methods should look like. It could
3: be a fun... uh, activity I'm just thinking now you say that Kevin in class and I've never done this to sort of think about what some different ways the origin could have been presented um were Darwin trying to fulfill other criteria it's kind of, that kind of yeah. would be fun sort of the what if
4: question <laughs> um,
3: but it is really interesting to think about your question James of when
2: did that narrative start yeah. when how and how why did it start out as a sole investigator and, and how did we get to here because
3: and it seems like
2: it's a, been a long time that yeah. it's been that
3: way. Most historians of science would say that, you know, it does reflect like the patriarchal scientific um, culture that we have lived in for a very, very long time, that, that has you know there's a reason why um, it benefits uh, the white male establishment that have been
4: historically the center of science. Okay. But now our institutions are completely designed around that model in how we as scientists at universities are evaluated very much is in the single investigator mode and where your collaborations maybe aren't as rewarded as the things that you do as individuals. And to be honest, that narrative or that model, I've never been comfortable with that in the 20 years that I've been a faculty member. And I try to do everything I can to not fit in that because I don't think that's how science works and it's not how the science that I enjoy doing works. And so I I don't know how that narrative is ever going to change, but I think it needs to.
1: Another point that might be worth mentioning here is the way sort of good and effective scientific methods may actually change over time. So we cite a paper um, in our article by Laura Franklin Hall, a philosopher of biology at NYU, and she makes this really neat point that in the past, it may have been more important in some cases to focus on hypothesis testing because you didn't have the kind of instrumentation that would enable you to collect lots of data at once. And so you had to sort of, for the sake of efficiency, focus in on on the most promising uh, things to investigate. Whereas she points out that now that we have new instrumentation that can allow us to collect a lot of data, it may be more efficient and more reasonable to not be as focused on hypothesis testing and do more exploratory work. And similarly, as we now have so much ability to do uh, more advanced computational work, it may make team science all the more important. So another interesting question is just looking at how trends in instrumentation and the capabilities of science may alter the kinds of methods that are most fruitful and effective.
0: Okay. And one thing that your article wasn't particularly focused on but came to my mind was the potential tension between this iterative, team-driven approach and something like journalism or public outreach for science. Uh, and I'm thinking here as someone who has written the occasional press release, and those bring to mind a particular format, you know, this big, splashy headline, a few quotes from the principal investigator, major findings summarized in bullet points or similar. And I'm wondering if there's a tension there, if there's something that's, you know, more difficult about the approach that you're describing, and how do you bridge that gap?
3: Well, I mean, the HBS literature looks quite a lot about how science gets translated for the public and often simplified, Um so you might tell a more complex tale, for example, in your scientific journal article, and then it's often simplified into a linear narrative or bullet points or whatever for the public. And I think one of the things that that our article talks about is the importance of staying true to the complexity and staying true to the different types of modes of science that are done. Um, so I think one of the challenges would be not patronizing the public by always um diluting and simplified, simplifying the stories that we say about science and presenting the complexity to them um, through text and also the importance of visual culture, I think, in scientific journalism as well. When, when you look at the construction of Darwin as a lone genius, for example, Janet Brown, who's a, um, an amazing historian of science, has published a lot of work looking at visual culture and the way in which photography and this, the photos that we now think of with Darwin as an old man with a white beard alone by a tree often mm-hmm. or with certain scientific props, That created him. It created him as a celebrity in his own time, as well as the time that we live in now. Um, So the images that we use to talk about scientists and science, I think, are just as important as the text, especially when you're looking at the public impression of science or understanding of science.
2: Well, and it's interesting because, you know, when you talk about writing press releases or, or doing sort of what we're doing today as a podcast, right? It does seem like usually when we get contacted about those, people are asking for only the lead author or only the lead PI. And the reality is, is there's more than that one person. And so we, Pat and I, especially, we've been really careful about that, wanting to make sure we always try to include our our co-authors and our co-PIs in those press releases and those articles to demonstrate that we're doing our science as part of Teams but often it's like the first time, right? We'll meet somebody out for, to take the picture for, you know, whatever press release and they'll be like, wow, we've never taken a picture with six people before. And, it, and it's just very surprising because we know that these other, other press releases about individuals, that there's lots of other people working with those individuals. And so again, those images that we are putting out there are important because they create that narrative.
0: Okay. And uh, one, one other thing I was hoping to ask about, um, is, you know, the genesis of this article. I was hoping you could just chat a little bit about that. You know, uh, how does it come to be that I'm, I'm speaking to this group all at once together?
2: Well, I guess I'll start. I, I think part of the genesis of this article was years of Pat and I working together and, and on research that was becoming more and more data intensive and running up against uh, challenges in getting that funded, getting it uh, valued by our peers. That was happening concurrently with um, my being joint with the Lyman Briggs College, where Kevin and Georgina are also. And so this is a very interdisciplinary college where along my corridor, I know I'm a, in the biology group there, there's historians, philosophers, physicists, mathematicians, and so every day we talk with lots of different types of scholars. And so you have conversations that are just very different from the more disciplinary conversations that you might have if you were solely in, say, a, a science um, department. And so those two things going on at the same time, I feel like really led to us starting to talk about, well, so has this always been this way for science? Are we really, you know, is there is there a historical perspective on what is good science and and how might this all
3: all come together? Um, I I think that's sort of where it started. And I think we were all excited to have a space where we could be interdisciplinary scholars. I think often you end up with a disciplinary affiliation and you're putting that sort of, niche in the university when many of us have interdisciplinary training and interdisciplinary interests. I know myself, part of my PhD um, program in history of science was to take um, graduate classes in ecology, evolution, behavior. So although I always learn a lot from, from Kendra and, and Pat about ecology and, and, and but I, it's also I can bring some scientific training that I have and apply it here and it was interesting when we first started the collaboration I really felt as a historian I'm used to dealing with dead people primarily <laughs> um, and also writing on my own and it was exciting for me to think and write and converse with a group and I envisioned the paper when we first started writing this isn't our first paper written together as having quite distinct sections. That there'd be the history section, and then there'd be the philosophy section, there'd be the ecology section, and there are some sections like that in this paper because this particular one has the case studies. Um, but the way we write is very, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, it is really collaborative, and uh, we're not just working on our individual sections. Um, and I found that to be incredibly stimulating and, uh, and rewarding. But I think a lot of it is just creating the space. I think there's a lot of faculty now in universities that want that space to be interdisciplinary and either the credit's not there for annual evaluation or RTP or the the interdisciplinary informal spaces like Kendra was describing, like just having coffee or bumping in, in the corridor or chatting about your classes and then it leads to, oh, have you read this book or this article and suddenly you realize you have a lot more in common with people across disciplinary divides than you might realize.
2: And I will also say that um, although we've sometimes in the past struggled finding funding, Pat and I have been very lucky in that in the last, uh, what was it, six years ago, mm-hmm. the NSF started an emerging frontiers program called Macrosystems Biology that funds just the sort of research we do. And we've gotten funding through them, and through that we've gotten a broader sort of peer group of right. scientists also conducting data-intensive research that has helped us to identify these challenges right. and to feel like, wow, we're not the only ones bumping up against this. And so it's given us the freedom, having that funding, to really sort of explore these sorts of ideas. I, okay,
1: go on, Kevin. So I was just going to say that from a philosopher's perspective, I think it was really interesting these issues surrounding, you know, seeing scientific methods as more iterative and involving these multiple modes. This is something that I had written about before, primarily with other philosophers or on my own. And it's really interesting. I feel like this article is much more, I guess, relevant in particular ways to the scientific community because of being able to Talk with Pat and Kendra and Georgina and see these challenges that they were actually facing. So it's kind of a fun example of the scientists trying to think through their practice in particular ways. And then the historians and philosophers having these ideas, but then being able to bring them together in ways that I think helps clarify some of the scientific issues and enrich and make more relevant some of the history and the philosophy.
3: You really get the sense that, I like the word relevant or it's useful. For me, the things that we produce together, I feel like they're useful to other scientists and they're relevant to other scientists in a way that... so my work looking at the 1920s for example perhaps it seems less so or feels less so to me um so when we do something collaborative like this i feel like it's genuinely useful um and relevant which is for a historian that that feels good to be able to produce something.
0: okay so you know talking then about the you know the benefits of breaking down those silos and you know i think you've just expressed sort of the you know the value that comes from a more collaborative and iterative approach um and I'm wondering, though, what do you think is the best way to get this implemented? And you know, where does it start? Does it start simultaneously at, with funding, publishing, and education together, uh, or is, should one of those be prioritized over the other? You know, where where is mm-hmm. the best place to implement change at least at first?
4: All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think you know, as Kendra and I have been dealing with this a lot of these issues for quite some time. I feel like it's just you just have to chip away at it at at every level. For example, you can start by participating in panels at you know, funding agencies, and you can be sitting at the table and you know sharing with your peers that, hey, maybe we should be viewing you know some of this science in a little broader perspective, or not criticizing proposals that don't that aren't strongly hypothesis driven. Um, And and I think there's small steps that can be taken everywhere, including institutions and how we we evaluate and judge faculty members for promotion and things like that.
3: A lot of the reforms we talk about, I think we view them as grassroots and also top-down initiatives, right? So it can be that faculty are doing those pushes like what Pat was describing, you're sort of pushing back against the norms and challenging people. But it could also be, you know, for the funding and the journals, it could also be top-down. So there can be some meeting between grassroots initiatives and also some top-down reforms um, that can bring these publishing and funding education more in line to what we see as the reality being done by most scientists today.
2: And I do feel like even though it seems like it's glacial and the way that it's moving very slowly and maybe it's chipping away. I actually do feel like we're getting to a point where we might relatively soon be seeing sort of a sea change because I feel like whenever I go out and talk about this stuff, there are an awful lot of early career scientists who are really interested in these ideas and are really supportive of these ideas. And so I, I feel like we're, we are slowly maybe getting there. And,
1: yep. Along the lines of Georgine was talking about kind of the top down and the bottom up, you know, if you've got these, you know, early career scholars who are interested in this, and then it's been really striking for me coming to MSU about three years ago, the institutional setting in which I was put just has facilitated this so much with uh, the residential college, you know, setting up these kinds of collaborations and then being in another department like fisheries and wildlife that has, you know, myself and then, you know, a range of other different scientists, I think it's really cool to see how if you create the right institutional setting, it makes these kinds of collaborations so much easier.
0: Okay, and that leads to my traditional last question, which is, what have I missed? You know, uh, what were you thinking of talking about on the show that I've yet to ask you about? Mm -hmm.
1: I guess one thing that comes up in the paper uh, is the question of so if one takes scientific practice to be more complex and not just focused on hypothesis testing, the question arises, how do you evaluate this when you're thinking about funding and publishing and so on? And as Pat mentioned earlier, you know, we don't want to say that anything goes and that you can just do anything. And so, you know, one of the things that we thought about and that we argued in the paper is that one can still look to see how significant are the knowledge gaps that one's trying to address in one's scientific work? And is there an appropriate alignment between the knowledge gap that you're trying to address? and the methods that you're using uh, to address it. So admittedly, this can still be complicated to determine whether there's a, a proper alignment and you know how significant these questions are. And this is something that the scientific community probably needs to keep thinking about in a collaborative way. But we do think that's an important question, that we need more complex ways of evaluating what counts as good
0: science. And that seems like a great place to leave it. Uh, thank you all very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It, was it was really fun talking with you.